0: This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW, 90.9 FM in Calgary.
1: The U.S. is just ridiculously different. It's absurdly venerated, purposefully democracy disabling constitution has remained in place with occasional amendments for two Hundred and thirty plus years. We've bowed down and prayed to the fetishized, explicitly, openly, anti-democratic U.S. Constitution for way too long.
0: That's Paul Street, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Paul Street, On the Anti-Democratic U.S. Constitution. The title of this program may come as a surprise to some. The Constitution is considered by many in the United States as a sacred document. Its framers are venerated as demigods. The founders, white men, slave owners, and holding property, shaped a document that would codify and entrench their class power and privilege. It was crafted to benefit the few at the expense of the many. The delegates in Philadelphia in 1787 made sure that the interests of the wealthy were secured and that democracy, rule of the people, was constrained and limited. The property-less multitude, which James Madison recognized as the majority faction, was a danger, he said, to be contained. The unequal distribution of property was a political powder keg for the framers. Hence, the need to maintain, as Madison called it, the spirit and form of popular government with only a minimum of substance. Our guest today is Paul Street. He's an independent social critic, commentator, and award-winning journalist. He's the author of many books, including The Empire's New Clothes and They Rule, The 1% Versus Democracy. His articles appear in Truthdig, *Z*, and Counterpunch. He spoke in Chicago. And now, Paul Street.
1: We do live in an insane, absurd, historical moment. Inequality, so extreme now that three absurdly rich people possess as much wealth between them as the bottom half of the population in the U.S. Economic power, so concentrated that you can count on one hand the multi-trillion dollar financial institutions that control the nation's economic and political assets. Six corporations together own more than half U.S. print electronic media. Three internet giants, Google, Facebook, Amazon rule online communications and shopping, the presidency held by a narcissist, creeping fascist pseudo billionaire he pretends to be a populist while doing everything he can to distribute wealth power further upward. We have been hearing constantly for two plus years that Russia undermined our so called democracy. But majority public opinion has been essentially irrelevant in the American oligarchy for decades. In his response to Donald Trump's State of the Union address, Bernie Sanders cited one poll after another showing that most Americans support progressive social democratic things like single-payer health insurance, free college tuition, workers' rights to organize, collectively bargain, a doubling of the minimum wage, progressive taxation, green jobs programs to give people decent employment while helping, by the way, save the planet? Great. So what? Who cares? In the United States, a recent authoritative political science text reports, quote, government policy reflects the wishes of those with money, not the wishes of millions of ordinary citizens who turn out every two years to choose among the pre-approved money-vetted candidates for federal office. In 2019, as in 2015, Sanders is the only remotely viable presidential candidate actually running in accord with majority public opinion, but the notion of him getting a major party presidential nomination is in all likelihood, again, a pipe dream. The Democratic Party isn't about social and economic justice, democracy, or ecological survival. It isn't even mainly about winning elections. It's about serving and colluding with corporate sponsors and climbing the neoliberal capitalist oligarchy. Think Bill, NAFTA, Clinton, the multimillionaire head of the Clinton Foundation. Think Barack, Trans-Pacific Partnership, Obama, who has entered the economic oligarchy now as a reward for his dutiful service to the nation's unelected dictatorship of capital. I've said it. Before, I'll say it again, the dismal dollar-drenched Democrats prefer losing to the right even a creeping fascist white nationalist right over losing to the left even the explicitly non-radical social democratic left in their own party. Forget the politicians, George Carlin used to say. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. Carlin said, you have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything, Carlin said. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets and they own all the big media companies. So they control just about all of the news and the information you get to hear. They spend billions of dollars every year lobbying to get what they want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you, George Carlin continued, what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around a kitchen table and think about how badly they're getting f-ed by a system that threw them overboard 30 years ago. It's called the American dream, George Carlin said, because you have to be asleep to believe it. In the nation's reigning dollar-drenched party and election system, as in its legal system, as in its media system, as in its educational systems, including its college entrance systems, as we were recently reminded, money talks and bone walks. Now I'll say something really scandalous. If you put on your historical earbud and listen hard through the ages, you just might hear the United States' big, wealthy powdered, wig-wearing, merchant capitalist and slave-owning Founding Fathers laughing about this big, messy, state-of-class rule that we are in. I'm always amused when I hear some political talking head denounce some modern-day plutocratic outrage as contrary to the noble and democratic intent of our holy Founding Fathers. David Barsamian likes to call them the founding finaglers. It's total nonsense. People need to do their damn history. Democracy, the rule of the majority, was the last thing the nation's aristo-republican founders wanted to see break out in their infant republic. Drawn from the elite propertyed segments of the new nation, most of the delegates to the 1787 Constitutional Convention shared their compatriot John Jay's view that those, quote, who owned the country ought to govern it. As celebrated U.S. historian Richard Hostetter noted in his classic 1948 text, the first serious history book I ever read, The American Political Tradition and the Men Who Made It, in their minds, Hostetter wrote, Liberty was linked not to democracy but to property. Democracy was a profoundly dangerous concept to the framers, to the nation's young arch- to the young nation's architects. Democracy meant, and here I'm quoting Hofstadter, unchecked rule by the masses. It was certain, in Hofstadter's word, to, quote, "...bring arbitrary redistribution of property, destroying the very essence of liberty." Liberty was about property, not democracy, to the founders. As constitutional historian Jennifer Nadelsky notes, protection of property, meaning the people who own large amounts of it, was the main object of government for all but one of the United States Constitution's framers, lonely James Wilson. The non-affluent majority was for the Founders what Nadelsky calls a problem to be contained. We the people were a problem to be contained in the view of the Founding fathers. and anyone who doubts that, and doubts the militantly anti-democratic character of the Founders, character of the Founders worldview, excuse me, all they got to do is go read, if you think I'm lying, all you got to do is go read the Federalist Papers written by the leading advocates of the U.S. Constitution to garner support for their preferred, more centralized form of national government to surpass the Articles of Confederation in 1787 and 1788. In Federalist Number 10, Holy Founder James Madison argued that democracies were, quote, spectacles of turbulence, incompatible with the rights of property. Democratic governments gave rise, Madison wrote, to... Factious leaders who could kindle a flame among dangerous masses for wicked projects like the abolition of debts and horrors of horrors, a more equal division of property. Okay? This isn't you know, Michael Parenti or some radical Marxist in the 20th century writing about those horrible, terrible founders. This is the founders themselves in language that can be found in the Federalist Papers. Extend the geographic sphere of the U.S. Republic, Madison wrote, and it will joyfully become more difficult for all who feel it to discover their own strength and act in union with each other. A big republic would be good because it would spread people out further and make it less likely that they would actually be able to unite and fight collectively for their class interests from the bottom up. At the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, Madison called for an upper U.S. legislative Assembly, an American House of Lords comprised of elite property holders, which is, of course, the U.S. Senate. The Senate, he hoped, would checkmate a coming rise in the proportion of Americans who will labor, Madison wrote, under all, under all the hardships of life, and who will secretly sigh, Madison wrote, for a more equal distribution of its blessings, of life's blessings. In other words, that they'll call for a more equal, egalitarian distribution of property and wealth. Madison worried that the propertyless and property poor American majority might in time, quote, outnumber those who are placed above them. According to the equal laws of suffrage, Madison warned, the power will slide into the hands of the non-affluent. And what a disaster that would be what a disaster democracy would be what a disaster it would be if the propertyless and property poor majority actually ruled if we had popular governance my favorite federalist paper though is number 35 by alexander hamilton the first uh, the future first us secretary of the treasury hamilton argued that the common people found their proper representatives among the small Class of wealthy merchant capitalists. The idea of an actual representation of all classes of people by persons of each class, Hamilton wrote, is altogether visionary. The weight and superior acquirements of the merchants render them more equal than the other classes, wrote Hamilton. Their, 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 their superior weight and vision render them more equal than the propertyless majority. Somebody please tell Broadway's Lynn manuel Miranda about the language in Federalist Number 35. Alexander Hamilton was not only not Puerto Rican and not black, he was white, not only that, he was a militantly anti-democratic classist. The New England clergyman Jeremy Belknap captured the fundamental idea behind the U.S. founders notion of what they like to call popular government. Let it stand as a principle, Belknap wrote to an associate in the late 1780s as they were deliberating on the Constitution. Let it stand as a principle that government originates from the people, but let the people be taught that they are unable to govern themselves. The the sovereignty of government emanates from you. You, however, are unable to govern yourselves. Uh, But, of course, it wasn't just about teaching the people that they were incapable of self-rule. Our, I mean, their holy constitution was designed to make sure that the popular majority couldn't govern itself, even if it thought it could, even if it got the crazy, wacky, Looney Tunes, wild, radical, Marxist idea in its head that it could govern itself. The constitution was structured in, 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 in such a way as to make damn sure that they couldn't actually do it. And so, the rich white fathers, our holy founders, crafted a form of government that was a monument to popular incapacitation with the explicit stated purpose of keeping the majority and the specter of democracy at bay, Constitution divided the federal government into three parts. With just one-half of one of those three parts, the House of Representatives elected directly by the people, a category that of course at the time excluded blacks, women, Native Americans and propertyless white males. In other words, it excluded most of the human beings living in the early republic. The Constitution set up elaborate checks and balances to prevent the possibility of the laboring multitude influencing policy. It introduced a system of rigidly fixed, steeply time staggered elections. Two years for the House, six years for the Senate, four years For the presidency precisely to discourage sweeping all at once popular electoral rebellions that's explicitly the purpose to prevent that from happening in the discussions in the constitutional convention they created a supreme court appointed for life by the president with confirmation restricted to the upper chamber of property elites and the high court was granted veto power over legislation or executive actions that might too strongly bear the imprint of the wretched multitude the propertyless and property poor rabble who seek who might secretly sigh for the more egalitarian distribution of wealth the Constitution's curious and bizarre, and if you're from the United States, it's always fun to try to explain the Electoral College to people from other countries. and They're like, "Huh? <laughs> the Constitution's curious <laughs> Electoral College. You know, College. I would say they, you know, that flunked the democracy entrance exam. Uh, you know, the, the the Constitution's curious Electoral College innovation guaranteed that the popular majority would not directly select the U.S. president even on the limited basis of one vote for each property white male at the time. And, of course, as we all so painfully know, the Electoral College is still in effect. You know, they were very excited about the checks and balances they had between the different branches of government. You know, the founders fantasized that they had crafted a form of of governance in which p- parties would never emerge. They believed that there would never be any parties. And the funny things about it is that the, the, the first the nation's first parties it, it, it formed precisely around the debate over the Constitution and then funding and assumption and other things in the 1790s. Checks and balances between the different branches don't mean very much when one party controls all or most of the branches as has occurred repeatedly in American history, and as still sort of goes on except for one half of the Congress, that is the House of Representatives right now. Now, it's true that the Constitution's Article V provides a mechanism technically permitting we, the people, to alter the nation's charter, but the process for amending the U.S. Constitution was and remains exceedingly difficult, short of revolution and or civil war. As uh, progressive Constitution critic Daniel Lazare has observed, moments after establishing the people as the omnipotent makers and breakers of constitutions, the Constitution announced that changing so much as a comma of the Constitution would require the approval of two-thirds of each house of Congress plus three-fourths of the state. The people did not assert their sovereignty in 1787. Rather, the founders invoked it. Once they uttered the magic incantation, they hastened to put the genie back in the bottle by declaring the people all but powerless to alter their own government. Now, you know, progressives have long advocated constitutional amendments to more properly align our politics and our policy with public opinion, but Article 5 is typically just too steep a barrier, and that's on purpose. Under its rule today, 13... Of the nation's fifty states can disallow constitutional changes, while containing just four percent of the nation's population. You can stop constitutional amendment with thirteen states, and you can go find four. Uh, you can f- go find for thirteen states that have four percent of the whole population. So states containing one in twenty-five Americans altogether can veto a constitutional amendment. It took the secession and military defeat of the slave South between 1861 and 1865 to pass amendments abolishing slavery and granting citizenship and suffrage to black human beings in the U.S. South. And, of course, much of that was subsequently rolled back into sort of a de facto form of slavery and disenfranchisement was instituted in the late 19th century in the Jim Crow era. Now, the Constitution is no small part of how a majority progressive nation. I mean, it's one of the stunning things about us. If you look at the public opinion data, the surveys on policy, the majority of the country is like Bernie Sanders, social democrats, are kind of left center progressive. Uh, the Constitution's part of how such a country that votes primarily, with not so much enthusiasm, but primarily for centrist Democrats, is ruled by arch reactionary white nationalist Republicans. So what if the GOP is viewed unfavorably by 60% of the U.S. population? The Electoral College renders the overall popular presidential vote largely irrelevant and gives each state an extra vote for both senators that they send to Washington, no matter how small their populations are. The Electoral College triples the clout of the nation's eight smallest states and doubles that of the next six smallest states relevant, relative to their populations. For the fifth time in history and the second in this century, two years ago, the democracy flunking Electoral College installed a president who failed to win the popular vote. In Trump's case, by three million votes. That's the biggest all time popular vote losing president of all time. And I'm not trying to express any particular sympathy for Hillary Clinton because she knew the rules of the game going in. You know, this is the, ele- the Electoral College rules are pretty clear. Okay, so I'm not feeling sorry for her, but anyway, Trump's in there, and he lost the popular vote by three million votes. Donald Trump made it into the world's most powerful job, thanks in part to the Electoral College, which renders presidential campaigning irrelevant and close to non-existent in most of the nation. If most of you are long-time, full-time Illinoisians, and unlike me, have never lived in a contested state, I have. I've lived years in Iowa. Most of my life, I've lived in uncontested states. Uncontested states, you don't know what a presidential election is. You really don't. You might have an idea of it from TV. But we're down to about, what, 12 states now, 15 states, that actually have a presidential election. But thanks to the Electoral College, why bother? Blue don't always blue in advance, which means all the electors are going blue. Why really bother with the, the Deep South? They're already red in advance, which means all the electors... Are going All the electors there are going on the Republican side. It's only places like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio. And there's some of these purplish states. Some states, you know, it's like they don't know whether they're contested or not. Some more might be contested this time. They might get a presidential election. And the electoral college system just gives this absurdly outsized weight to disproportionately white and right-leaning rural states. And, of course, it just openly violates the core democratic principles of majority rule in one person, one vote. And it's been fascinating to watch cable news and see right-wing Republican experts come up, because that's what you do in cable news. You get the Democrat over here and the Republican over there, and that's the whole spectrum, the right and the left. And to actually see the right-wing Republican guys actually get up there and just say flat out, that's, we're not a democracy, and the founders didn't want us to be, and we shouldn't be. And the funny thing about it is that the line from Trump and the Republicans is that thanks to the Electoral College, there's an election in the whole country. That's what they say. They go, the, the, the small states would be completely ignored, and we'd only focus on the big cities. And it's just complete nonsense. The, the way it, it's the exact opposite. That's, they're, they're saying 2 plus 2 equals 5 there. The, because of the Electoral College and its winner-take-all electoral system and the partisan geographic polarization of the states now, where you can just write them off. We actually have a uh, we have a presidential election in 15 states at most. The Senate, I love the Senate proportionate system. It's even more skewed to the right. The two percent of Americans, I'm talking about this. Every state gets two senators, no matter how, what population they have. Which, which to me is just it's just Monty Python esque, you know? It's 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 darkly humorous. The two percent of Americans who live in the nation's nine smallest states have the same amount of senatorial representation as the 51% of Americans who live in the nation's nine largest states. Red Wyoming, I love this, home to 573,720 people, holds U.S. senatorial parity with Blue California, where more than 39 American millions reside. That's one senator for every 19.5 million Californians versus one senator for every 278,000 Wyomingians. What's a Wyomingian? I don't know, a Wyoming, let's say a Wyoming resident. A Wyomingian. Talk about a rotten borough system. You know, these still about rotten boroughs in the British House of Lords. Speaking of boroughs, just one of New York City's five boroughs, Brooklyn, has 2.6 million people. If Brooklyn, one of New York City's five boroughs, were a state and U.S. Senators were apportioned there at the same population to senator ratio as Wyoming, Brooklyn would have nine U.S. Senators. And I'm thinking in Brooklyn it's unlikely that a single one of them would be a Republican. Now the same goes for Chicago, which is home to 2.7 million people. You know, Brooklyn and Chicago are like the same size. The Chicago metropolitan area is 9.5 million people. If it enjoyed Wyoming's population to senator ratio, Chicagoland would have 17 U.S. senators. I mean, think about that. That'd be like one person, one vote, right? Which is like one of the core elementary baseline definitions of democracy is one person, one vote. Uh, I'll, I'll get even crazier here. The following 13 states have a combined population of 34.4 million Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Utah, and good old Wyoming. Together, these 13 red states send 26 Republicans to the U.S. Senate. The single state of California, with a population more than 5 million higher than those 13 states combined, of course, sends two Democratic. Senate to our House of Lords, the US Senate. This proportionate system, this apportionment system means that the Republican Senate majority answers to a very disproportionately white, rural, and reactionary section of the electorate. And due to a population shift from the agricultural interior to crowded corridors along the coast, it is now at least mathematically possible to cobble together a Senate majority with states that account for just 17.6% of the popular vote. I mean, that's just insane from a Democratic perspective. It's not insane from a right-wing oligarchic perspective. You know, don't think that Donald Trump isn't getting a significant part of his agenda through. Not all of it. But one of the more neglected ones that, you know, everything's been Russia now for so long that we forget about all the other that's going on. And the handing over of the federal bench and the staffing of the federal judiciary, not to mention the Supreme Court, by the right wing Federalist Society is a legacy that's going to be with us for a very long time. And who is in charge of passing judgment on Supreme Court appointments? Just the U.S. Senate, not the House. And that U.S. Senate is absurdly over representative of the red state, white nationalist, Republican, rural heartland. Now, in some nations operating with parliamentary systems, terrible, awful, disgusting, revolting, dysfunctional, proto-fascistic presidents or prime ministers can be compelled by votes of no confidence and the like to call or exceed new national elections. Wouldn't that be something? That's half new elections, right? Such an action is unthinkable in the United States. Simon, I'm sorry, I mean the holy founders, the holy constitution, says that qualified voters get to select presidents, well, indirectly, we don't even directly elect presidents, once every four years. We can select U.S. senators once every six years. And House Representatives once every two years, and that's the way it is. And if you don't like it, sit down and shut up. Simon says.
0: You're listening to Paul Street on the anti-democratic U.S. Constitution. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
1: I once realized I was that I might be living in, a, in an authoritarian society when I was about five years old and I first played the game Simon Says, right? It's the stupidest game ever invented. Yeah. A kid says, step over the line, and you step over the line and go, No, you shouldn't have done that. Simon, I just I I'm supposed to say Simon says first. Oh, okay. Simon says. Put your finger in your nose. Oh, good. very good! You did it. what is that? You know, that's kind of how we are with the Constitution. I remember once I was sitting in a coffee shop in Iowa City, and two University of Iowa law students were looking up for their law books, and they had just read some some Supreme Court decision, and the one looked at the other and said. You know, we've made, like, gods out of these guys wearing powdered wigs in the late 18th century, you know, when the Bourbons sat atop France. They're like like holy lords or something like that, as Simon says. Um, As George W. Bush's White House spokesperson, Dana, Dana Perino, explained in March of 2008, when a journalist asked her if the citizenry should have input on U.S. foreign policy, you know, like every day, like between elections. Dana Perino said, well you had your input. The American people have input every four years. That's the way our system is set up. Cheney said something like that too. I'm not driven by polls. I don't care what people think. We were elected. Well, but Perino and Cheney were on strong constitutional ground. Pathetically enough, constitutional, Simon says you get to select a president indirectly in a voting booth for two minutes or so once every 1400 days. Well, except you don't actually vote for the president, the Electoral College does, and and it's already a done deal in all but 12 to 15 of the states before you walk in the voting booth, but you get the idea. You get to vote for a U.S. House member. Usually, by the way, and I didn't have time to go into gerrymandering, which isn't in the Constitution. There's nothing that mandates gerrymandering in the U.S. Constitution. But you get to vote for a U.S. House member, usually in a heavily gerrymandered district, for a few minutes. Once every 730 days, you get to vote for each of your U.S. senators once every 1,095 days. You don't vote for Supreme Court justices. The president, for whom you don't vote directly, appoints them, subject to approval from the Senate, which absurdly overrepresents the rural and white populace. That's how you get a, a serial abuser like Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court for life. Supremes are appointed for life, which is like a really, really long time. It's <laughs> why we're so desperate to, you know, everything to the people of liberals and, I mean, even me, to, to anything. If we just keep Ruth Bader Ginsburg alive long enough to not have a fascist president to replace her. Now, it's true that presidents like Trump can be constitutionally impeached by the House and removed by the Senate, but the barriers to removal are very steep, and again that's on purpose. It's never happened, though Richard Nixon would certainly have been impeached and removed had he not resigned. He resigned after the moment when Barry Goldwater, Senator Barry Goldwater, went in and told him, we've got the votes in the Senate. So, I mean, you know, in in effect, Nixon was a de facto impeachment and removal. But the barriers are very, very steep it's never actually happened except kind of for Nixon. Full defenestration of a president, no matter how awful that president are, requires a ter- two-thirds vote in the absurdly unrepresentative Senate. And, of course, the Senate right now is under the Republicans. And it's not clear also, by the way, that Trump will accept the legitimacy of an electoral college vote that doesn't go his way in 2020. That sounds like a shocking, amazing thing to say, but there's distinct possibility that Trump is going to declare a vote that doesn't go his way illegitimate. He's been setting us up for that from the beginning of his presidency by claiming that, uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton's three million vote ahead of him was, unju- was, was based on fraud, illegal immigrant, it's a complete hoax, illegal immigrant voting. But what would impeachment and removal give us under the revered holy US Constitution anyway? The presidency of the arch right-wing Republican Mike Pence. you think Trump is scary? Pence is a Christian white nationalist under whose rule the hard right agenda that most of the populace hates might be advanced more effectively than it is under Trump. Don't like it? Too bad. Simon, I mean the Constitution, says. That's how it is. So, suck it up, buttercup. Get back in shape for the next strictly timeline, time-staggered, constitutionally mandated, quadrennial, candidate-centered, electoral extravaganza to vote a Democrat into the White House? Really? Why bother? The Democrats are every bit as corporatized and sold out to the financial plutocracy and its military empire, to the capitalist system that emerged out of national development under the rule of the property elite that the holy founders worked so hard to protect. Every bit is captive to and sold out to and owned by that system as the Republicans. And they are that way thanks in part to the outrageously outsized role of big money campaign contributions in the nation's Politics in its ever more absurdly expensive elections. And that role, that role of money, the role of campaign finance, the role of the wealth primary, so to speak, in our electoral process, is traceable at least in part to the U.S. Constitution. The founding finaglers created the Supreme Court as a critical, appointed-for-life check on the popular will, and in two landmark decisions that took place in the lifetime of everybody in this room, I think, in the Buckley-Vallejo decision, 1976, and the Citizens United decision of 2010, the high court has ruled that private campaign contributions are free speech and that there are no constitutional limits that can be set on how much the rich and the powerful can invest in the giant organized bribery project that is U.S. Campaign Finance, don't like it, too bad. Simon, I mean the Supreme Court and the Constitution, says. Want to form a politically relevant, more genuinely progressive and egalitarian third party beyond the radically regressive and reactionary Republicans and the dismal dollar-drenched Democrats? Hope the Founders' Holy Charter is not on your side. It encourages winner-take-all, first-past-the-post elections tied to specific geographical districts. There's no provision in it for proportional representation to accommodate and create room for third or fourth parties that are never ready at the first election that they roll out their uh, agendas to compete and win pluralities in American elections. You don't like it, neither do I, neither do most Americans. Most Americans forever have told pollsters that the two big-money major parties do not adequately represent the actual spectrum of political opinion in this country. And again, so what? Who cares? Too bad. Simon says, sit down and shut up. So, (laughs) what is to be done? Everything. You don't have to have a decent constitution in place to engage in class struggle and the fight for the common good. The Bolsheviks didn't need a good constitution. There wasn't any constitution at all to make the Russian Revolution in 1917. Electoral politics, constitutional interventions and congressional investigations and Mueller reports are not the only or even the leading politics that matter or ought to matter most to a real functioning left. Take to the streets, occupy workplaces, idle capital, to siege corporate headquarters, protest corporate media, defend immigrants, provide sanctuary, form grassroots movements, learn how to build barricades, put on a yellow vest, become a gilet jean, stop traffic, transcend sectarianism, form a movement culture that makes movements fun again, engage in civil disobedience, join the extinction rebellion, get real about the state of the world, hold workshops on what capitalism and industrialism are doing to livable ecology, form community permacultural gardens, resist the racist police. People are doing this. None of this stops being essential because the nation is absurdly beholden to an absurd parchment from the time when the nation was ruled by slave owners and merchant capitalists wearing powdered wigs. And tights, too. That said, we ought, like the guillet in France, to be calling for a new national government and a new national charter. Around the planet, national constitutions actually do not generally last all that long. As a Zachary Elkins, Thomas Ginsburg, and James Melton note in their book, The Endurance of national constitutions. It sounds like the title of their book actually ought to be The Non-Endurance of National Constitutions. Quote, The mean lifespan of constitutions across the world since 1789, the French Revolution, is 17 years. Since World War I, the average lifespan of a constitution is 12 years. And I'm not saying we should be rewriting constitutions every two months either. I mean, that can get dysfunctional as well. But the U.S. is just ridiculously different. It's just off the charts the other way. It's absurdly venerated, purposefully democracy disabling Constitution has remained in place with occasional amendments for 230-plus years. We've bowed down and prayed to the fetishized, explicitly, openly, anti-democratic U.S. Constitution for way too long, We deserve something much better to be drafted by people's representatives elected to a constituent assembly empowered to write a new national charter that would be dedicated to the introduction and the preservation of our holy founders' ultimate nightmare, popular sovereignty. Thank you very much. I'm over... I was done quicker than I thought I would be. But oddly enough, and curiously enough, that has actually emerged in the gilets jean movement. There's an explicit call for a Sixth Republic in France uh, and for a rejection of the fetish of uh, so-called bourgeois representationalism and a call for direct democracy. Imagine that. Uh, and it not it amazing how monumentally invisible the French protests... Have been in American media. This is a country that shares a lot of Western civilizational history in the United States. It has a seat on the United Nations Security Council. This is a big deal nation, France. They're a nuclear power. Undergoing a a prolonged mass, damn near proto-revolutionary movement in the streets for week after week after week. And it was barely covered on cable news, on on CNN and MSNBC, and I saw more of it on Fox. Because Fox kind of liked it because they hate Macron, because they paint him out as some sort of leftist, which is, of course, completely absurd. He's a neoliberal in the mode of the Clintons and, and the Obamas. And it was sparked by a fuel tax. And the Trumpies loved that because then they wanted to frame the gilets as really being against the environmental agenda. In fact, what the, the gilets many of them actually, many of them are environmentalists, what they were objecting to was the regressive nature of the fuel tax which was disproportionately imposed on these working-class people who have to commute to work at ever-increasing distances from French cities because of gentrification in France. And also, it was a tax that had come in the wake of the repeal of the famous social wealth tax in France, too. In other words, they were saying, why should we have to disproportionately pay for efforts to stem climate change? They weren't, you know, and, and it turns out they're not anti-climate. They're, they're, they're not against healing the planet and all that. But in any event, not even on the radar screen of our media. I'm trying to remember, at the time Gillet-Jean's was going on, what was obsessing uh, national media at the time? Oh, there was the shutdown stuff. Yeah, we were all about the shutdown stuff. And, of course, we've been obsessed about Russia. You would think there's just nothing but Russia's alleged oligarchic overthrow of our purported democracy for just about the last two years, right? You know, I did a paper on Truthdigger. I think it was counterpunched somewhere. It's was like, who will save our democracy from the oligarchs? The American oligarchs. <laughs> sure. Bob. You know, there's a, I want to interject a little bit. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, that it's grim. I, the, the one thing I like about this Extinction Rebellion group, which has come up, is that they reject, and they do this in an exis, in, in kind of a spiritual Buddhist existential kind of way, they reject the uh, false dichotomies of hope and fear, this future orientation. We always have to stay hopey-changey and happy. no. The the, the the old left wing slogan: "Don't mourn, organize." I don't want to be organized by anybody that doesn't know how to, doesn't know how to mourn. Properly mourn the situation we're in, deal with it, and and take your future, and then and then and then get real about where we will are. That's where actual action that might matter begins. And the ER slogan is: "Hope dies, action begins." And I actually like that because yeah. we live in the present moment, and hope and fear, but both. Take us out of it. The, the, the earth is our witness. The real world that we're living in, where livable ecology is now seriously in danger. And, and human extinction is something we can actually talk about by 2100. Deal with that and then get serious and operate from there, not from some future type of thing. I just, I had to say that. Go look up and see if you can find a brilliant essay that, you know, that Brooklyn-based Left Business Observer guy, Doug Henwood, wrote in, I think it was March 2008, and it was all about Obama, and he, like me and Glenn Ford and a bunch of us on the left, particularly people from Chicago who knew the Obama phenomena as a Chicago-Illinois and Illinois phenomena before the National We, you know, we knew what he was going to be all about all along. And, and Henwood, very sharp, very cynical, brilliant guy, you know, knew what Obama was going to be advancing. He did an article called Would You Like Some Change With That? <laughs> but he said there is hope in Obama, and he said the hope is... When it gets crashed, when it hits the wall, when he's excited all these young people and got them all thinking... And he made the New Left analogy with JFK. You know, all the, the youth, the young people. The, 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 the Ivy League charisma, the telegenicism of JFK, you know, hitting that wall of corporate and imperialist crap, you know? And it's like the wake-up to the youth of that. And I think some of that happened to some extent. I think it took a while with... Um, you know, with Obama. But I think some of that happened. I think, I think that's how Occupy happened. And, and, you know, Occupy was a big deal that then screwed up. They, they, like, went right up to the edge of saying we should nationalize the financial institutions, and then it's like, nah, we don't actually have policy demands. Or, I mean, could they have at least said financial transaction tax? I, I think that might have resonated with a lot of us. But anyway. You know, there was a class of Obama supporters, and I knew them. I, I ran into some of them in Iowa City. That in some ways, they were the worst. I would give the left critique of Obama. He's really a vacuous to repressive neoliberal. And they go, yeah, you're right. And they liked it. you know. And he's just using identity politics, and he's just using race, and he's pretending to be progressive. And there were people with PhDs and political scientists and law professors. Because my son, I, I, I wanted to be involved in a, in a, because I'd never been in a state that had presidential election, and I wanted to know what the Iowa caucus thing was. I kind of went undercover in it. My son got a job after he was done with Grinnell for Edwards. And Edwards was kind of an interesting phenomenon. Right. I told the Sanders people when they came through Iowa City in 2014, I said, go, don't just look at the Obama thing. You've got to go take a look at those, those, those rallies that Edwards used to have with the Two Americas thing. You know, the rich and the poor, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I got involved in some of it, and, and I, I let him get me out knocking on doors. And I'd have these bizarre conversations with, with really snotty sort of academics who who got the left critique of Obama, and it made them like him even more. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. They were so excited to have an opportunity to paint them, to pat themselves on the back. They're ready to vote for a black candidate. And you go, oh, well, so you care about race. Did you know that Iowa has the highest uh, uh, racial disparity in its incarceration rates in the country? And I go, no, you don't say. I mean, you know, race beneath the color of faces in high places, like like how our society structures, didn't matter to no. him. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think you can have them at the same time. And Aristotle said you couldn't have them at the same time. He said if you you'd have to one of them would have to give. You'd have to have either. You have to choose. T- Thomas Jefferson said something similar to that. And there was the famous quote from uh, Louis Brandeis. And I found out more and more, even though they put it on the. Sidebar of the Brandeis University. You know the Brandeis quote, the American people must choose. He's supposed to have said it in 1941, and no one can actually run down the actual quote. But it's not unlike something that Louis Brandeis would have said, which was, the American people must choose. You can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. I would elaborate upon that in saying that if Louis Brandeis actually said that or wrote that, he was denouncing capitalism as anti-democratic because Thomas Piketty showed in his book that Marx was right in the capital and the Webster's my my collegiate uh, my gigantic version of the collegiate Webster's dictionary definition is correct. It has in its definition of capitalism that has an inherent tendency towards an increasing concentration of wealth. So then you then you're with Ellen Mikeson's Wood, the recently deceased Canadian York University Marxist who wrote a book called Democracy Against Capitalism. They just are incompatible with one. I don't think you can, but you can certainly fight and struggle and try to have some countervailing power from the bottom up, which we had to some extent in the 20th century, largely through unions. My main candidate for the most underestimated factor that never gets mentioned behind the rightward drift of American politics is the fact that we had a union density rate of like 40 percent when I was a little kid, and I think it's under 10 percent now. And the private sector is down to 6 percent. So even just by the, the rules of the game of capitalist politics, you just don't have that. Um, you know, it is, it is absolutely extraordinary how close Sanders came to winning the Democratic nomination in 2016. I, and I mean with no business. They've crunched the numbers on this. He didn't have a single corporate business donation. That just doesn't happen. So something's going on out there. You know, 57% of registered Democrats call themselves socialists now. If you dug down into that poll and looked at millennial Democrats, I'm getting to you, it's two-thirds. How the the heck did that happen? You know, and that's James Madison's nightmare. I mean, that's a whole topic in and of itself. I have ideas on that, but we could be here forever. I think capitalism, as experienced by young people, which is actually, they're the first generations that they're going to be worse off and their parents generation and it percolates down the middle class kids now with thanks to the student debt thing it's all over the media now it's all over the media politics culture and you all you got to do is turn on cnn and msdnc and and it's the first word out of these commentators <laughs> mounted and it's not just from the right you know it, it's it's weird we're in it we have a new type of mccarthyism now we have a new mccarthyism and classic mccarthyism was about the cold war era now the Soviet threat and the Socialist threat have been split apart from one another. And the Democrats are running this whole Russia line, and, and it gets called neo-McCarthyism, but in, it, it is and it isn't. It is that on the foreign policy level, it is because the enemy is Russia. The problem is that Russia... What, some of my Trump and left fans don't seem to understand this. I mean, not my... No. Some of my online Trump, what I call Trump and left friends, not fans don't seem to even get it that they dismantled socialism in the Soviet Union and they tore down the Berlin Wall and it's now kind of a fascist right-wing oligarchy right now that no one wants to be like friends capitalists for God's sake. So, but Russia did it, Russia did it, but it's not socialist anymore. And then the great moment in a State of the Union address where Trump actually said, let us all now pledge that the United States will never be... A socialist country. I never thought I'd hear something like that in the State of the Union direct. And most of the Democrats, except Sanders, stood up and, and applauded. Even Pelosi was back there. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know how these guys, these wilkes guys and these yeah, Iowa guys, that, respond to socialism. That's an interesting thought. Now he, now, he was suggesting that Sanders would have won some of these guys. And I, and I think he might have. I think they're split. I think, they, I think they're, I, I don't think they're all, I don't think you can homogenize all of them thing about this, there's, really, there's this interesting line in Jason Stanley's book about fascism, about how fascists get to benefit from seeming authentic because the corporate domination of the liberal politics exposes the liberal politicians like Obama and Hillary as so deeply inauthentic. And they mouth all this politically correct kind of multicultural stuff and it all comes off as just gibberish in defense of a, of a globalist corporate state. And Trump just walks into that, like fascists do, like Bolsonaro in Brazil, like the guy in charge of Hungary, like the guy in charge of Poland. They just walk in with this plain talking, Archie Bunker type of attitude, I'm not gonna worry about what I say anymore, and it looks authentic. Sanders had a little bit of that just barrel-chested, you know, truck driver from Brooklyn kind of thing, getting up there and being pissed off at the uh, at the 1% and that. Sounding like someone from Yale or Harvard. Which, I mean, Hillary's Yale law. That's not even Harvard law. That's one step above, man. Rachel Maddow's got a PhD in political science from Oxford, for Christ's sake. Thank you all.
0: See, we have a small group and still have fun. So it worked out. <laughs> you were just listening to Paul Street on the anti democratic U.S. Constitution. He spoke in Chicago on March 23rd, 2019. Paul Street is an independent social critic, commentator, and award-winning journalist. He's the author of many books, including The Empire's New Clothes and They Rule, The 1% Versus Democracy. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 33rd year of broadcasting. We're part of the nonprofit media organization Rise Up. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Chuck Collins, Michael Parenti, Winona LaDuke, Michael Yates, Shoshana Zuboff, and Ralph Nader. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, Alternative Radio. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Paul Street on the Anti Democratic U.S. Constitution, call us at 1 800 444 1977. Again, that number is 1 800 444 1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Dale Lehman recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening.
2: arrived at cjsw 90.9 fm we're currently broadcasting in calgary across treaty seven land next stop university station Welcome to Classical. Cool. I'm Fiona, and I have such a cool show uh, planned today. Uh, Today, we're going all the way back to the beginning, and we're focusing on Baroque music. Uh, Baroque music uh, happened between the 1600s up until the mid-1700s, so like 1600 to like 1750. Uh, And it was really kind of the first uh, real classical music uh, era. I mean, you had like Gregorian chants before and like Renaissance music before. But really, Baroque music is the first, like, what we consider today to be classical music. And so, uh, my first track is by one of the first Baroque composers. So, we really are starting, like, at the beginning. Uh, Vivaldi, uh, Antonio Vivaldi, is a Venetian, uh, was, sorry, a Venetian uh, violin virtuoso composer and priest. Uh, and he, he's accredited to be, again, one of the most famous Baroque composers and one of the first, like he came before Bach and Handel and everybody else. It was Vivaldi first. And he is really accredited to kind of inventing the concerto. Uh, and he wrote over 500 of them. He uh, composed like many, for many, many, many for violin that are st- a lot of them still played today. And his most famous work is actually uh, The Four Seasons, which you probably know. And that is a concerto for violin. No, I don't. didn't want to play the Four Seasons today because I value my sanity. It is so unbelievably overplayed. So I thought I would share some other Vivaldi rap and actually play um, a different concerto. And this is his uh, Viola Concerto d'amor in D minor. Uh, so here is Antonio Vivaldi's uh, Viola Concerto in D minor.